The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Monday, April 18th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here was a headline in the New York Times. Is the risk of dying from COVID-19 comparable to driving to work every day, skydiving, or being a soldier in a war? No, no, and yes, depending. But I do have to say that was a headline from a couple of years ago. They revisited it today and have some new statistics. And today's a good day to revisit the question of risk in COVID-19. Philadelphia mandated indoor masks, but a federal judge struck down a mandate about masking on planes. This judge, by the way, was appointed to the bench by Trump, despite having a not qualified rating from the American Bar Association. Sometimes I think we're conducting an experiment to see what stimulus shakes people's faith in institutions versus which just shakes our faith in reality. But anyway, wouldn't it be great if we just said that the presence of COVID or the presence of this current strain of COVID increases our risks by this amount, a set amount that we all kind of understand. And luckily, there is such an amount, and it's called micromorts. It's a 40-year-old unit invented by Stanford professor Ron Howard, and happy days are here again because the micromort is back in vogue, although unhappiness because the micromort is back in vogue. We can say, however, because of the micromort, we can compare any activity to a one in a million chance of dying, and that is the unit. That is the micromort. Skydiving? That's about eight micromorts. Oh, now I'm beginning to get it. So if you got a one in a million chance, you skydive, you got eight more chances than that, eight micromorts. Oh. Now, micromorts haven't caught on as much as I would have liked. I think it's a great concept, a clever enough name. It's better than the necro itty bitty. But there needs to be an identifiable character guiding us through the micromort. Human beings identify with characters. So I have invented the character. Hello, I'm Micromort, and I'm here to tell you a little about death. Just a little. Hi, Micromort. Let's say I had anesthesia here in the United States. How many Micromorts would that be? That's about 10 of me, 10 Micromorts. So that's the same as skydiving, huh? No, a little less, a little more, 8 to 10. Well, what about having a baby? That's 210 Micromorts. What about being a baby? That, that's about 600,000 micromorts, though my cousin, hi, he knows a guy he could get it to you for 5,500 wholesale. Okay, okay. What about murder? Well, that's an infinite amount of micromorts. If you're murdered, you're dead, kablooey. Now, if you mean getting murdered, these days, that's about 69 micromorts, which is up about 25 micromorts from a couple of years ago. Meaning that setting everything else aside, but murder, being an American in 2022 is as dangerous as being an American in 2019 who jumped out of a plane three times. Provided that American had a parachute, no parachutes, the micromorts go through the roof, through the floor, through the next story ceiling on, on down, you get the picture. Yes, and a disturbing one at that. But what about COVID? Bring me to COVID, micromort. Okay. Well, if you're vaccinated, dying of COVID, it's about 250 of me. About the same as dying during childbirth. Oh, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty small. Childbirth is actually disturbingly high in America, but it's more or less a very safe procedure. 
It is, it is. But if you're not vaccinated, well, one researcher calculated it is the same dying of COVID, using me, micromorts, the same as dying while serving in Afghanistan in the year 2011, if you were in country the whole year. That is a lot of micromorts. Yeah, I get that. I'm a lot. On the show today, gastric harms and lucky charms. But first... Rick Hassan is a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine. He's the co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. As such, pays a lot of attention to the Supreme Court of the United States, but also important and instructive is thinking of SCOTUS as downstream from other courts, lower courts, including the crucially important 14 Courts of Appeals, the Federal Courts of Appeals. These powerful institutions with lifetime appointees have been issuing decisions lately that are harder to understand from a legal framework than the Supreme Court rulings that have themselves caused head-scratching, eye-twitching, and hair-pulling. Rick Hassan on the heightened roguishness of the lower courts. Up next... This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The United States Supreme Court is, of course, the highest court in the land. It issues opinions in about 75 cases a year. Those opinions can drastically reshape the course of the country, but most of them clarify, resolve, or generally confirm the status quo. Agreement actually happens more than disagreement among the justices. But under the Supreme Court, right under, feeding the Supreme Court with cases and sometimes justices, shaping the court are 13 appeals courts, 12 regions, D.C. counts as a region, and one federal circuit. They're extremely important institutions, and I would say on a national level, 
criminally undercovered. The Supreme Court had 5,300 cases filed with it last year. The appeals courts have upwards of 50,000 cases filed in a given year. Let's talk about the appeals courts because some interesting and maybe concerning things are going on in a couple of these circuits. Joining me now is Rick Hassan, who's a professor of law and political science at UC Irvine and the author of Cheap Speech, an election meltdown. He's also the director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center, a couple of passions. And once again, he joins me on the gist. Hello, Rick. Welcome back. Great to be talking to you. Yes, I agree. So these courts, these courts of appeal, do you agree with my assessment that we would all do a lot better, not just uh, election aficionados, but just inform citizens to pay attention to their construction and their decisions? Absolutely. And, you know, I would extend it even further and say that the lot, there's a lot that happens at the district court level that deserves attention, too. So there's three levels in the federal courts. First, you typically file a case in a federal district court, and, you know, that's the local court. And then that goes to the appeals court and then potentially goes to the Supreme Court. But as you said, the Supreme Court controls its docket. It takes very few cases. And so the final word is often with these appeals courts. Yeah. And as well, you tell me, but uh, as a percentage of cases or a percentage of cases that actually have some contestable material, it does seem like the appeals court gets to more of them than the Supreme Court does. The Supreme Court has huge uh, discretion on what to take. But you tell me the appeals court, it seems to me, task, they task themselves with really hearing every appeal that could plausibly be considered up for appeal. Well, these appeals courts don't have discretion. They have to decide something. I mean, they can decide these yeah. cases without oral argument and just, you know, get rid of them, but they have to make a decision on the merits. While the Supreme Court, with the exception of some really important election cases, has complete discretion. And, and when I say about some election cases, by statute, this used to be much more common in the 1950s and 60s, but by statute, the court hears certain election challenges that get appealed from a three-judge district court. They bypass the Court of Appeals, and they go directly to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to take them or at least do something with them. And so that's an that's important part of my area, uh, you know, the cases like where the Supreme Court recently overturned an Alabama decision that was going to require the creation of a second black majority district for Congress in Alabama would have been a huge deal. And the court put that on hold and is, is going to hear that case. But putting that kind of cases aside, so much of the action today happens at the Court of Appeals level. And the Court of Appeals have been changing thanks to a bunch of Trump appointments over the last uh, four years before Biden came in. Does the change in the uh, courts of appeal, does it reflect the overall conservative dominated, and I'll use that as shorthand for appointed by Republican president dominated construction of the Supreme Court? Uh, so uh, every court of appeals is made up of a number of judges. And in some of the circuits that you mentioned, the circuit balance between Democratic appointed judges and Republican appointed judges has um, flipped. Uh, and so now there are more Republican-appointed judges, and that has implications because when there's something really important in a circuit, the entire circuit can take a case that was heard initially by a three-judge court. They take it what's called en banc, and it's heard by the whole uh, circuit, and they can really make major changes, and these are changes that often the Supreme Court doesn't pass on. 
Mm -hmm. I have uh, some of the statistics here. So like I said, 13 courts of appeal, seven of them are dominated by or have a majority of judges who are appointed by Republicans, six by Democrats. But if you drill further down, the Republican dominated circuits are really dominated. The sixth, seventh and eighth have, in fact, more Trump appointees than all the Democratic appointees combined. Uh, those, Those circuits have more than a two to one ratio of Republicans to Democratic appointees. The Fifth Circuit, which is really important, also has an overwhelming number of uh, Republican-nominated judges. And I kind of, to some extent, I hate to use that as shorthand for how the court will decide and where the court's uh, head is in its decision. But on the other hand, as I read these decisions, it does seem to be pretty predictive of where the questionable or controversial decisions will be made. Well, let me push back a little bit and say, just like at uh, in your intro, you mentioned how many of the Supreme Court's decisions are unanimous. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is true, too, in the courts of appeals. There are many cases, bankruptcy cases, tax cases, all kinds of cases where there isn't a strong ideological valence to the uh, decision. And there, the judges act more like it wouldn't matter whether they were particularly conservative or liberal, um, because you know, the you know they're just trying to come up with reasonable rules. But in the most uh, contentious cases, you know, the cases that make it to the, the the front of the newspaper's webpage, yes, those cases is where it makes a difference. And I would point out, it's not just a split between conservative and um, uh, liberal judges or between Republican-appointed and Democratic-appointed judges. Something different has happened with these Trump-appointed judges. You mentioned the Fifth Circuit. There was a recent case where Judge Jerry Smith, who um, is a very conservative Fifth Circuit judge, was just lamenting what his um, Trumpy uh, Republican judge colleagues were doing on the Fifth Circuit. There are some judges on the Fifth Circuit that are so extreme, they're too extreme even for the hardcore conservatives that have been on the Fifth Circuit for a long time. What kind of rulings are coming out of those judges? Well, you know, you're getting rulings, you know, about uh, uh, SB8, if you've been following that. This is the uh, abortion case where Texas came up with this really weird um way to try to get around Roe versus Wade that seemed to be an end run around the Supreme Court's protection for abortion rights. And the Fifth Circuit basically slow walked it. And we now have a situation where because of the Fifth Circuit's rulings and the Supreme Court's refusal to get involved, uh, the ability to get an abortion in Texas has been severely curtailed. That's a direct result of um, how the Fifth Circuit judges are controlling things. So, you know, there's a lot of discretion on the part of district court judges, but in these contentious cases, once it makes it to the Fifth Circuit, it's almost certainly going to reflect a conservative view. You had a, a you know, a, a decision had to go up to the Supreme Court on vaccines and whether or not the United States Navy could require uh, those in the Navy to get vaccinated against COVID. And you had uh, and had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to confirm that, yes, in fact, Joe Biden is the commander in chief and that the Navy can require people to get vaccinated. Uh, we're seeing cases involving uh, the Voting Rights Act. And uh, we, ha- we had a ruling uh, from a lower court saying that 
people don't even have the right to sue under the Voting Rights Act, even though it's been very clear since the 1960s that they do have this right. So uh, things that uh, used to be off the wall, ideas that we used to think of as, you know, no reasonable judge would entertain that as a serious concern. Yes. Uh, those are the ones that are coming in. And to add to this, because you're, you know, there's one Supreme Court, they're the only ones that can decide cases, you know, on a national level. But when you are trying to challenge a ruling uh, in the lower courts, you can decide in many cases where to file that case, which right. state to file in, and also which district. So there are a couple of small districts in Texas where there's maybe one or two judges. And if you kind of know what those judges are and how they're going to react to things, he said, oh, this is the judge that three times said that Obamacare is unconstitutional or, you know, read it very narrowly so that it, it can't work. Let's file with the, in front of this judge. So there's right. we call that forum shopping. Uh, you can kind of pick your judge. And then, you know, if you get a kind of rubber stamp from a court of appeals, you can get a lot of mischief uh, done. And so, yeah, the, pa the patent troll industry uh, relies on that. A couple of judges in, I think, West Texas are open to some of these cases, and that's where they're all filed. Right. And, you know, you get this with bankruptcy, too, in terms of, you know, who's going to allow and this is this has come up with the, the Sacklers. Um, you know, who's going to allow the Sacklers to get a, 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 a pass on liability in connection with the, the pharma uh, bankruptcy? So uh, forum shopping is a huge issue. And the Supreme Court, because uh, they can't hear every case, they can't really assure uniformity everywhere. Uh, uh, there, there's just no way to control all of these kinds of things. Yeah. And of course, some criminal defendant who may have had his rights violated, he doesn't get or she doesn't get to forum shop. It's more likely uh, someone with a lot of resources or a multinational corporation. Oh, absolutely. Right. And or, you know, besides that, people who have uh, they're bringing a case for ideological reasons, they're trying to bring a test case. You know, they're mm -hmm. looking for, you know, where do I where do I file if I, if I want to get the Voting Rights Act thrown out? Where, where do I start? Yeah. And so that's interesting that if there are, unlike maybe some other branches of government, where if they are some extreme outliers, I'm thinking of, you know, certain members of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. Okay, their damage can somewhat be uh, contained. They don't, be, they're not able to set policy, but with the courts and even district courts, we're talking about appeals, that is one or two really huge outliers, a couple orders of magnitude away from the consent can have big effects. Oh, yeah. And um, these judges have life tenure and they have the ability to issue orders that make major decisions in the, in the lives of people. Just think about what's happening now with challenges to transgender rights. You know, so one court judge in Texas has said, let's put this on hold for now. And that's making a huge difference in the lives of lots of people based on the discretion of either a single judge or three judges on an appeals court. Linda Greenhouse in the New York Times says the Fifth Circuit has gone rogue. Would you go that far? Well, when I mentioned uh, earlier, Judge Jerry Smith um, really saw this as the Fifth Circuit taking a new turn towards extremism. And, and back before um, the Supreme Court in the Brnovich case uh, last summer reined in the, the meaning of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the Fifth Circuit, sitting on banc a few years ago, issued a decision that said that 
Texas's strict voter ID law did in fact violate the Voting Rights Act. It was surprising because you had a few of the Republican-appointed judges join with the Democratic-appointed judges to, to reach that ruling. But I think if that case came up today and the Fifth Circuit were thinking about it, even putting aside Brnovich, there's no way, given the change in composition of that Fifth Circuit, that it would reach the same conclusion. And we've been hearing that President Biden is appointing a lot of uh, new judges, which I think is great. And he's appointing a diverse set of judges, from you know, some from public defender backgrounds, more women, more people of color. I think it's great. But in the Fifth Circuit, there are not vacancies that he can fill to flip that circuit, even to make it a little less Trumpy. And so yeah. there's only so much that, that you can do. There's only so many spots on these courts. And if there aren't vacancies uh, in, in large numbers, then you're really stuck with that lower court composition for a while. If you had to rewrite the rules on this, many of them constitutional, what fixes would you make? Well, you know, we've talked about at the Supreme Court level, a lot of people have suggested term limits of 18 years. And, and I think that's a sensible thing to do for Court of Appeals judges, too. They don't have quite as much power as Supreme Court judges, but they have a tremendous amount of power. And, you know, why should we give someone life tenure? The, the argument for it is that they are going to be more independent. But because we are so ideologically divided... And because the judges that are appointed have ideologies that tend to reflect the views of the parties, um, it really can lead to a system where things are out of balance. Just think about it at the Supreme Court level. Donald Trump got to appoint three members of the Supreme Court, right? That is, uh, you know, a third of the Supreme Court for one presidential candidate for these can these uh, appointees will be on for decades, and it's the same thing with the lower courts. Serendipity uh, shouldn't be what controls so much of our public policy in the United States. Uh, I think also Congress can consider if it wants to put limits on jurisdiction of what courts can hear. And of course, the most important thing Congress can do is pass statutes that protect rights, abortion rights, voting rights, and all of that. Now, some of those laws could end up being struck down by the Supreme Court or by the lower courts. But then that at least makes the stakes plain that it is the courts that are the impediment to protecting rights. Rick Hassan is the author of Election Meltdown and his newest book, Cheap Speech. He's a professor of law and political science at UC Irvine. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It was great. Now the spiel. People have reported sickness from a certain frosted oat cereal with sweet surprises. KBC TV LA has more. The FDA investigating Lucky Charms after reports the cereal has sickened some people nationwide. There have been several hundred complaints against the popular cereal, including people reporting they vomited after eating a bowl of it. General Mills, which makes the cereal, says it doesn't believe its cereal is the cause of these illnesses, but it is also it also said that it's conducting its own review. And in Espanol, per amuletos de la suerte. Por sus siglas en inglés, tiene bajo investigación cereales de la marca Lucky Charms. 
So, sounds serious, let's analyze the ingredients of Lucky Charms to see what might have caused the illness. Pink hearts, yellow moons, orange stars, green flowers, blue diamonds, brown fecal matter, and purple horseshoes. I can't tell what it was. Did you pick anything up there? Yeah. Well, the greatest trick the leprechaun ever pulled was convincing the world he wasn't the devil. Now, what's interesting is this. The Lucky Charms outbreak, or supposed outbreak, has been amply chronicled on IWasPoisoned.com. That is, of course, a dating app, toxic masculinity, and so forth. No, it is a well-regarded website that has helped alert companies and authorities over the years that their snacks lead to yaks, that their vittles are causing the sh- You get it. But most large companies actually want to head off these problems, not try to hide them. Think about it. General Mills, the maker of Lucky Charms, three-star general, retired, is much, much, much better off isolating the bad batch or the bad process that made people sick and then correcting it. They'd much rather have it go down like that than having a general sense that there's a leprechaun out there who's trying to get you. But so far, there seems to be no proof That actual Lucky Charms, tested Lucky Charms, Lucky Charms from the same batch that allegedly sickened people, no proof that there's anything in that Lucky Charms, those Lucky Charms, that caused the illness. And at this point, you do have to begin to wonder if the contagion isn't foodborne but social. Though I do have to say, research shows that IWasPoisoned.com does have a pretty good record of pointing out bona fide outbreaks. That's IWasPoisoned.com, an IWP Health Inc. company. That is real. I shit you not, unlike Lucky Charms, allegedly. Going through the complaints on IWasPoisoned.com, a lot of people who claim to be poisoned, by the way, there are some interesting ones that pop out. A consumer who bought her Lucky Charms at King Supers of South Colorado Boulevard, Denver, Colorado, said, I had two bowls of Lucky Charms over 24 hours and experienced severe diarrhea. I still have the box, which is half full. I have had no problems in the past with Lucky Charms. I use water, not milk with my cereal. How do you just drop that into the last line? I mean, there is a real sickness here, and it's not nausea. Water? With your cereal? Are you also an Evian and Oreos type person? This person bought their Lucky Charms at Sam's Club, Peachwood Center Drive in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Bought a box of Lucky Charms from here approximately one week ago. Discovered upon eating Lucky Terms a few times, I immediately turned sick, nausea and diarrhea. This led me to leaving work twice to deal with noise from eating my breakfast. Oh no. Don't know if those were typos or just, yes, she was being or he was being honest. There was some noise. So most people did get quite unlucky with their lucky charms, but sometimes you make your own luck. Like this lucky charms consumer bought the lucky charms at Consentino's Price Chopper, Northeast Woods Chapel Road, Lee Summit, Missouri. I regularly eat a bowl of lucky charms as a late night snack and have for years. The last two times I have ate a bowl, I have broke out in a sweat and began exorcist style vomiting. I started thinking my milk was bad, but bought a new gallon and had the same results. Well, I guess you can't accuse that person of jumping to rash conclusions. They did A-B testing, a little scientific method. You've isolated it wasn't the milk. Try it again with the bowl. Once more for the spoon. Similarly, this Bakersfield, California Lucky Charms eater writes, I didn't think it was Lucky Charms at first. I thought I was just feeling sick. So I ate something else. I had soup, chicken, mashed potatoes, water, soda, crackers, and all kinds of stuff. But none of it made me feel that way. 
Every time I ate Lucky Charms, I would get sulfur burps and I would get nauseous. And sometimes that combination made me puke. Along with the diarrhea that came afterwards, every single time I had a bowl, and here's the kicker, even a brand new box made me sick. (laughs) I used to love Lucky Charms, but this is different. It's not okay. No, but you gave them a chance and another chance and mixed in the soup, mashed potatoes, soda, and crackers and gave them a third chance. I, I would say yes. Again, you've isolated it, the Lucky Charms. But you know what, my friends? I do have something to confess right here. I'm kind of interested in this. I do not like laughing at people's uh, intestinal distress, but I had a personal reason to focus on this. It is because I am the leprechaun who's been poisoning your breakfast. Well, actually I am, and my advice is to really sift through those grape nuts, but no, it's something else. It's about how humor works. Because while I had heard about the supposed outbreak, I paid almost no attention to it. And I heard about it in English language and Spanish media. But I didn't really focus on it until Michael Che made this joke on Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago. It was reported that at least 139 people around the country have said they became sick after eating the breakfast cereal Lucky Charms. Well, one or two people getting sick could be a coincidence, but 139? That's tragically suspicious. Solid joke, but also a bizarre coincidence because six years ago, when my son was in first grade, my youngest son, he put together what amounted to his first stand-up routine. It was the school talent show, and the topic was... I know some of you might know this cereal is... Lucky Jones! Lucky Charms, and not just anything about the Frosted Oats cereal with marshmallow surprises, but in fact, the iconic jingle. Everyone knows this jingle from it. Frosted Lucky Charms is magically delicious. All right, premise established, and that's when the riffs began. This old video that I'm playing of him, he was, we taped it so he could develop his material, work things on out. You could hear him working out the beats of the bit. But it used to be not that good for you. So this is what it used to be. It's not really nutritious. Okay, he needs to hit that punchline harder. I think we could all agree about that, about the seven-year-old. Uh, not really nutritious. Boom, bang, audience laughs. And with the next bit, his older brother, who is then eight, he had to swoop in to help clarify what Emmett was trying to say. And the leprechaun, he runs away with it, um, the, the cereal. So he's really quite mysterious. Suspicious. Suspicious. Okay, we can all agree, though, the building blocks are there. It's not that far off a famous late-night comedic institution, Weekend Update, and the kid's seven. Of course, the big criticism of the seven-year-old was what comics always have to deal with too soon. In Emmett's case, it was seven years before anyone got sick of Lucky Charms. But as they say, timing is everything, which is why I think the best advice is when you get sick from Lucky Charms once, Don't go back more than two or three times to try to isolate the illness with different batches of milk. And that's it for today's show. You know what would help us? Going on one of those sites like uh, the Apple iPod site and leaving a review. 
Some say it helps others find us. I don't know about that. I just like to read the reviews. You know what really does help? Listening to the end. That helps. That's a pro tip. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. He's the assistant producer. Corey sometimes slips into a fantasy where I find it hard to know if he's separated from reality into his own slightly altered world. He's passively fictitious. Joel Patterson, a senior producer of The Gist, has tough choices to make, but makes them with maximum care. He's massively judicious. Michelle Pesca is COO of this burgeoning empire called Peachfish Productions. She's expansively ambitious. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu depru dupru. And thanks for listening.